In the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. Um, firstly, am I right to talk like this? I don't need a mic, right? Yeah? Good. Blank faces, excellent. <laughs> All right. Um, welcome to our very, well, our second episode of The Way. Um, last week, we had the pleasure of uh, Father Michael, who came to us and spoke to us about creation. And in particular, he spoke about um, creation out of nothing and what the implications of that are. In the, in the sense of our humanity. Um, so basically, uh, in a nutshell, what he was saying and, and what the, um, the emphasis of the talk was in, was that creation out of nothing basically means that we are created out of nothing else but love. And that's what he dwelt on last week. Um, we've recorded the topic, so if you wanted to have a listen to that, if you missed it, um, you can go back and listen. I think it's on our Facebook page or Facebook group. Um, just to give you an idea of what's going on, so... Um, the topic or the series for, for, to start off with is Back to Basics. And what Back to Basics is, is it's a, talk, uh, it's a series of talks basically about the big picture of the Bible or, or about the big picture of our relationship with God. So the big things that we're going to talk about are creation, which is what Father Michael spoke about. We're going to talk about tonight's topic, which is the glory of God's creation, which will cover things like image and likeness, what that actually means, um, sin, and, and what that did to our nature and so forth. Um, then the next thing will be salvation, obviously through Christ. Um, then the church. And then the last topic will be the Eucharist, which is the epicenter or, or the focus of our Orthodox worship and our Orthodox unity with Christ. So these are the five topics that we'll be covering. We've covered one. We've got four more to go. Um, but I, I chose to title tonight's talk, The Glory of God's Creation. And I think in a way it's going to, um, emphasize what Abuna spoke about last week, um, and it's gonna it's gonna unpack that a little bit further. So if you have any questions, just interrupt me, and we'll we'll uh, take from there. It's not going to be overly complicated, I promise. All right. I just wanted to start the talk by by quoting one of the fathers, Saint Irenaeus, who who lived in the second century, had this to say. He said, "The glory of God is a living human being. The glory of God." is a living human being. Now, what does that actually mean? Because a lot of the times, I mean, I've seen this, especially online these days, you, you, you tend to find lots of quotes, and people tend to use them to suit what they're trying to say, right? So, does the glory of God's creation is a living human being means that I need to live my life to the fullest? Um, do you remember the phrase YOLO? You only live once? Is that what it means? If St. Irenaeus was here right now, would he say, fellas, YOLO? I don't think so. Um, does it mean that I need to, to not take life for granted? Possibly. Hopefully, as we go through the talk, we'll see exactly what St. Irenaeus meant. But what's interesting is it wasn't just St. Irenaeus who spoke that way. Talking about glory, ascribing glory to man, right? Giving man this high esteem in the eyes of God. St. Ambrose said the same thing. He says this. He says, Know, O beautiful soul, that you are the image of God, Know that you are the glory of God. Know then, O man, your greatness and be vigilant. So again, this is a saint who, lives, who lived in the 4th century, and this is what he had to say. And there's lots of other quotes, and patristic, particularly patristic quotes, that you'll find that speak about man as this, you know, this um, beauty of God's creation. Okay, but to understand what these fathers are talking about, these fathers and others, I think we have to go back to the account of creation. And that's where Father Michael started last week, and that's where we'll um, pick up, 
right? So if you go to Genesis chapter 1, that's our account of creation. If you focus on the language, it's a very short chapter. I'm sure we've all read it numerous times. I tend to start, you know, my, my reading plan with Genesis 1, and then I drop off by Genesis 3. So I've read Genesis 1 so many times. But the, if you focus on the linguistic, on the, on, the, on the language and on the literature of that particular chapter, it's very poetic. It's very majestic, especially the way that the writer depicts the creation account, right? And this is in your handout. Um, basically, what, what tends to happen is, the, um, this is how the account goes, God creates, so God commands that something be created, that thing is created, and then God affirms his creation as being, as being what? Good, yeah. So God commands, something gets created, and then God affirms his creation as being good. So he starts with light. God creates light, and then he affirms that it's good. Then there's the firmament, there's the land, vegetation, sun and the moon and the stars and so forth, um, living creatures in the sea, in the air and so forth. And then the language changes dramatically when we get to man, right? This is what we're told in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. What do you notice that's different about this passage compared to everything else? Everything else was a set formula. God commands, it gets done, God affirms. What's different this time around? Look at the focus in the beginning. What's the focus in the beginning? What does God, what, oh, sorry, what does the, uh, the verse start with? Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let us is what I wanted to focus on. Because what does that tell us? Let us is not God referring to himself and the angels. This is um, a Jewish understanding, or one of the Jewish understandings to this passage. Let us for us as Orthodox Christians is the Trinity at work, right? The Trinity, everything was created, and then the Trinity got together and started a project. And the project is to create man, to create the human being. And when you think about it this way, you think about how much care, how much planning is going into creating this creature which is man, which is you and I, right? And that's why... That's why the fathers keep referring to man as the glory of God. Because of the care that's taken to create man and because of the fact that we are created in the image and likeness of God. You know what it's like when, when, uh, when my wife and I, um, we knew we were having our firstborn, what did we do? We, we went out, or I went out and started to prepare um, what we were going to buy. So I started looking for cots, uh, you know, um, change tables, tall boys, a chair, a nursing chair, all these things. And then, and then my wife went out and actually picked something totally different. But the idea was, what should have happened was collectively, we went out and started to prepare this room. I went home and I painted the room blue. And, you know, by the end of it, it was a beautiful room. It was ready for the baby. Um, and that's exactly what this account's like, right? It's, it's God in the Trinity the Trinitarian Lord and God, he set to create man. He went on a project to create man. And before creating the man, 
He made sure the world is ready. He made sure the universe is ready, and he made sure his dwelling place is befitting of men. This is what St. Ephraim, the Syrian, has to say. Focus again on the word glory, right? This is what he says. He says, In Adam's case, God honored him in a variety of ways. First, because it is said that God fashioned him with his hands and he breathed the soul into him. He also gave him authority over paradise and what is outside of paradise. And he wrapped him in glory and gave him reason, thought, and an awareness of the majesty. This is St. Ephraim, 4th century. So man is the glory of God because man is created in the image and likeness of God. Man is wrapped in God's glory. Now I wanted to focus on what it means to be created in the image and likeness of God. Are the two words meaning the same thing, image and likeness? What do you guys think? In our, in our understanding, in our orthodox understanding, are the two words referring to the same thing? What do you guys think? Yes? Hands up yes? Yeah? Hands up no? I'm guessing everybody else is going to put that. <laughs> okay. Um, in our orthodox understanding, image and likeness are actually two different things. In, in the Hebrew language, in, in the biblical language, what tends to happen is sometimes if, um, if there's an emphasis placed on a, on a particular concept or on a particular thing that the writer wants to emphasize, what they would sometimes do is, is use two very similar words to describe the same thing. But we as Orthodox Christians, we look at image and we look at likeness and we say, no, the, the word of God is infallible and it is written, these two words are written there for a particular reason. And it's our purpose to live the word and to understand what that word actually means for our lives personally. So this is our orthodox understanding. Let's have a look at what image means and let's have a look at what likeness means. What's interesting is that there's no general consensus on what image means. We are created in God's image. We know that for sure. But what does, actually, what does it mean to be created in God's image? It's obviously not a physical image. We know that for sure. But what does it actually mean? And so I did a quick survey of the fathers. And this is what I found. This is only some of the fathers. Obviously, more fathers speak about this. But this is what I found. So St. Clement talks about image of, of God as being the intellect, so our rational mind. Talks about our creative um, our intrinsic creativeness, talks about our, our ability to reproduce, not like the animals. Um, St. Basil says it's, it's essentially just to be good, just as our father is good. Um, St. John Chrysostom talks about dominion. He, he refers to the actual passage in Genesis where after, after we're told that we're created in the image and likeness of God, we're then told and we have to have dominion over the animals and over the world and all that is therein. And that's St. John's focus. And then St. Gregory of Nyssa, who wrote extensively about this particular topic, he seems to think, as well as St. Basil, that it means to be good, just as our Father is good. Um, but it also means that we are created as free beings, and that's, that's how we imitate our Lord, and that we, have sovereign, we are sovereign over evil, so we are able to defeat evil. Um, there are other writings, but we don't have to go into that, but See that there's no consensus? But what is beautiful about this, when I was just sort of looking at what the fathers had to say, is that when you put all these things together, when you group them together, you start to get a fairly good idea of what it means to be created in the image of God. So we are created to be rational beings, right? We are created to be uh, creative. We are able to recreate. We are able to, we are able to defeat evil. 
we have dominion over the earth and all that is therein. And I think Father Michael spoke about this last time, in the sense that dominion doesn't mean that you rule the earth and you do whatever you want, but it's more that you're a, um, a keeper of the earth. Then we talk about, and it means that you have free will, it means that you have, um, again, the ability to, to rule over evil. So what do we know about image? We know that image is something that's imparted to us by God at the, at the point of our creation. We know that being in the image of God is our very nature. We know that even after the fall, and this differentiates us from some of the other um, Christians, as Orthodox Christians, we know that even after the fall, I still bear the image of God. That image may be distorted, it may be um, tarnished, you know, it, it may be skewed, but at the end of the day, I am still intrinsically an image of my father. And, and the same with everybody else. You know what? I, I, this is interesting. In, in, also in the Coptic church, when, when the Abuna does this um, sensor circuit, our focus is on piety, our focus is on repentance and, and um, lifting our hearts to God in prayer, just as the incense rises up to heaven, um, similar to prayer, right? Um, but in the, um, in the Eastern Orthodox tradition, one of the reasons that the priest raises incense is he raises it to every person who congregates in the church because they are bearing the image and likeness of God. So they actually you know, incorporate this into their, into their particular service, into their tradition. So that's how much emphasis we should be putting on it. So that's what it means to be created in God's image. Um, what about likeness? Likeness is a little bit simpler because we know, you know, we know what likeness is and then um, it's just an easier concept to understand. We are created, we are made in God's image, we are created in God's image, and we are to grow towards his likeness. Right? And St. John Chrysostom summarizes this beautifully, or he explains this rather beautifully. He says that we become like God to the extent of our human power, that is to say, we resemble him in our gentleness in, and mildness and in regards to virtue, as Christ also says, be like your Father in heaven. So remember, he was talking about image as being dominion. Now he talks about likeness and he says, well, it's actually to grow closer to God. So the image is our initial gift, which God has given to us. It's a grace that God has imparted on us. And the likeness is what we do with that gift. Right? The image is the potential we have to become like Christ, and the likeness is actually living to that potential, living to that um, goal of actually becoming Christ-like. Okay? And if you look around, we have got icons all around the church. Whichever way you look, there's icons of a saint. Right? And these are the men and women who attained that likeness. And so when we're in church, you're in heaven, because you look around and you see all these saints and you realize they've made it. They know what it means to live in God's likeness. And so if I imitate these saints, I'm imitating Christ, right? That's St. Paul said. I wanted to go back on what it means to be created free because that's going to take us into problems, into the fall. So as we were told, to be created in the image and likeness of God means that we are created as free beings. Um, and it's not just free, it's a radical freedom. It's a fearsome freedom in the sense that God created me and then left me to choose my own path, knowing that I may 
walk away from God. Right? That's, that's why it's fearsome. And if such a freedom does not exist, what would happen? If we weren't created free, what would happen? Besides the fact that we wouldn't be in God's image, we wouldn't be created in God's image, what would, what would happen? Well, maybe say, C.S. Lewis might have something to say. He says, free will, though it makes evil possible, it also is also the only thing that makes possible any love or goodness or joy worth, have, worth, <laughs> worth having. So when we look back to, um, to paradise, where Adam and Eve were placed, and they were given everything in abundance, and the only commandment that they were given is do not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. We tend to think of it as a test that Adam and Eve had failed, right? And it is a test, but not in the sense that, you know, God set the tree and made it look so beautiful and so enticing, and then he went and hid away to see what Adam and Eve would do. That's not, that's not the test that we're referring to. It's rather a test to see if Adam and Eve would affirm that freedom um, through the obedience, right? And, and, and as a result, they would grow closer to God. They would grow in unity with God. So although freedom makes the, avail- the possibility that we'll disobey God, as Adam and Eve did, it's also the only way that I can show my love for God. Right? I can reciprocate that love that God has given me. And this takes us to the fall, right? The fall of man. Do you remember St. Ephraim the Syrian was saying man was wrapped in God's glory? In the fall of man, what happened? What happened straight after men sinned, Adam and Eve sinned? What did they realize? Their nakedness, yeah. The first thing that they realized is that they were naked. They were wrapped in God's glory once. They sinned. They found themselves naked. Um, They were no longer wrapped in God's glory, and they were ashamed. And, And the way we think about that day of sin the day that Adam and Eve fell into sin, it's actually, um, there's a difference in the way the Western um, churches think about this and the way that the Eastern churches, as in the Orthodox churches, think about sin, right? So I'll quickly go through it. In, in the Western church, they refer to this as the original sin, the sin of Adam and Eve as the original sin. It's the breaking of a commandment between God and man, right? So what happened? God said, donate from the tree, Adam and Eve ate from the tree. God got angry. God punished them to death. And because, and this is an Augustinian thought, so St. Augustine was the one that sort of um, championed this thought, is because you and I are the offsprings of Adam and Eve, we were actually in their, we were, we were inherent in them, in their humanity on that day that they fell. Which means, this is not our understanding, right? Which means that I am guilty of the sin that Adam and Eve committed. Okay? That's the, the Western understanding. So the Catholic Church and, and the predominantly the Protestant churches. And because we inherit this guilt, we are guilty of this sin, we cannot pay the sin, and that's why Christ has to come to the, has to be incarnate and has to suffer and, and die and resurrect to pay with his blood for my sin. It's a very legalistic context. You sin, you die, and, and God comes to, to rescue us. In the Eastern, in our church, in the Eastern theology, it's a little bit different, right? God's commandment to Adam and Eve is not 
you know, if you sin, if you break this commandment, I will kill you. That's not, that's not what happens. We are told, this is what Genesis chapter 2, verse 17 says. It says, in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And, and the way we understand this, it's, it's not a threat. It's actually a warning. It's God setting the boundary and saying, if you eat from this tree, you will cut ties with me, you will no longer have communion with me, and you will die as a result. This is the Gregorian uh, liturgy. I love it because it's very poetic and it, it sums up this whole idea that we're referring to um, in, a couple of, in a couple of sentences. It says, Of one plant have you forbidden me to eat, that of which you, said, you have said to me, of it only do not eat. But according to my will, I did eat. I put your law behind me by my own counsel and became slothful towards your commandments. I plucked for myself the sentence of death. I plucked for myself the sentence of death. So Adam and Eve, being rational beings, being able to think through their actions, choose, chose to eat from the tree and chose to cut ties with God and chose to break communion with God. And in this sense, we are not guilty of Adam and Eve's sin, right? In this sense, you and I have a tendency to sin, have an inclination to sin, have a corrupted nature, a nature that's, that's still in God's um, likeness and God's image, but we are swayed by sin, right? This is what St. Cyril of Alexandria has to say. In, in regards to this very point. He says, Our nature then became diseased by sin through the disobedience of one man, that is, of Adam. In this way, the many became sinful, not because they broke the commandment of God with Adam, for they were not in existence then, but being of the same nature as Adam, that nature which fell under the law of sin. And then what happens after Adam and Eve sinned? Death entered into the world, as we're told. Right? So our separation from God brought death into the world. Turning away from God was, was man's only way to deal with the separation from God. And man was left to fend for themselves. Right? That is why after the fall, you know, before the fall, in, intrinsically, Adam would have been filled with peace, would have been filled with joy, would have been filled with um, comfort, um, having that unity with God. What happens after the fall? You know, if we, you know, maybe you can do this yourself. If we take away all the noise of the world, if I take away the radio in the car, if I take away my, my colleagues, my friends, my family, and everything else, and I, and I sit there in all honesty, looking at myself, bearing my own um, sinfulness, what am I filled with? We're filled with these things. Sorry, it's not there. We're filled with fear, we're filled with anxiety, we're filled, we're filled with insecurity. That's what happens. We've cut ties with God, and we do so every time we sin. And every time we sin, and God is no longer in the image, we are filled with these negative emotions. Having turned away from God man looks for the next best thing to turn to. And you know what the next best thing to turn to is? Can anybody guess? The next best thing 
is the glory of God, which is man. So after the fall, man no longer had the, had the, um, the communion with God. And what, what tends to happen is we tend to turn inwards, right? We become the object of our own life. Rather than worshipping God, I, I end up worshipping my ego. And that's the way that society is heading, isn't it? It's all about look out for number one, you know, uh, put yourself first. Um, there's so many ways that the world pushes this idea of, you know, you are in control of your own actions, you are your own God, and that's the way you ought to live. Again, back to the St. Gregory's liturgy. This is what we're told. You, as the lover of mankind, have created me as men. You have no need of my servitude, but rather I have need of your lordship. So we are told that we are created with a need for God's lordship. But when we cut ties with God, when we cut communion with God, we make somebody else lord. Who's that person? It's my ego. Right? Does that make sense? Yeah? But it doesn't end there. I'm not going to walk away tonight having depressed you guys. It doesn't end there. There's a way to restore that glory of humanity, right? There's a way to restore the glory of man. There's nothing that you and I can do to restore our own humanity, our own nature. Because I am broken, and the only person that can fix me is the only person, or the, the, the God who created me. How God did this, and why God did this, and, um, and the whole economy of salvation, we can cover next week, because that'll be the topic for next week. But let it suffice to know that God came down, was incarnate, he died, he suffered and died and resurrected, and he did all this for you and I. Right? But what happens now, and I think the best description we've got is from St. Peter's um, Pentecostal, uh, not Pentecostal, his, uh, his sermon at the Pentecost. This is what St. Peter says. He says, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. So he refers to baptism and our chrismation. And in John chapter 3, we're told, Unless we are born of water and of spirit, we have no inheritance in heaven. We have no part with heaven. So our baptism, and again we can cover this in, in future series, is, um, is to renew that nature. That nature that was skewed and, um, and diseased can now be renewed, can be made new. And we've got adoption, we are granted adoption into Christ and his family. Right? But there's still one problem. This is all well and good, but there's still one problem. What is that problem? Does it end there? Am I good to go? Have I got a ticket to heaven? What's that problem? Why, why is there something in the way between me and God still? Thank you. Yes. Yes, beautiful. I still have that inclination to sin daily. I still have that choice to make daily. Thank you, Sharif. Beautiful. This is the result of the fall. All this was done, and God instituted these mysteries for us, but our nature still has inclination to sin. And that's why we must strive daily, as Sharif said, through the putting to death of our 
ego, right? Through the life of repentance, um, through communion with God in the Eucharist, in the church, through his members of his body, and so forth. All this we have to strive for daily in this life. And if we do so, then it gets perfected in the next life, right? Now, I just wanted to go back to that creation account of man. And God, God in the Trinity, set, to, set forward and created this project to create the man, the human being. Um, I found this, this uh, I've heard this reflection a couple of times, and it's really profound. It's really, it's really interesting. In the sense that the work that God in the Trinity has started on that day of creation, all right, you know what's interesting? On that day of creation, remember I was telling you about the formula? God commands, something gets created, and then God's affirm, God affirms his creation by calling it good. What happens after he creates man? Does anybody know what actually happens? Does God affirm man as good? No, it doesn't, it doesn't explicitly affirm man as good. So what God, what we're told, is that after man's created, then everything, God saw that everything that he has created had been good. But he doesn't, we aren't specifically told that God says, and behold the man who is good, and affirms him as good. And the reason is because that work that the Trinity started on that day of creation was not finished yet. It was started, but maybe it wasn't finished yet. Adam and Eve were created, but what happened? They fell, and they, and they, they cut communion with God. Many righteous men and women came after Adam and Eve, but they also fell. None of them were perfect, perfectly in communion with God. That is, of course, until one man came to the earth, right? Our Lord Jesus Christ. And then what happened? God lived, the Son, our Lord Christ, lived that life that Adam and Eve and that you and I were supposed to live, that we're called to live. And you know what? Interestingly, he's confirmed as the human being. You know by who? That man up there. Pontius Pilate. He mockingly and yet prophetically, after, after he, um, he tortures Christ and so forth, he turns to the people and he says, Behold the human being. It's actually behold the man. It's behold, the, in the Greek, the anthropos. Do you know, in the beginning, this whole talk of tonight is about the study of orthodox anthropology, is what we call it. We call, oh, I like to call it that because it makes me sound like I'm smarter than I actually am. But the, it's a study of the human being. And then Pontius Pilate refers to the human being. This is the example of the human being, right there, the anthropos. And you know what else? On that day that our Lord was crucified, he says something very peculiar. He says it is finished. And again, in, in regards to this contemplation, what is it that's finished? He's hanging there on the cross and he says, it is finished. What is it that's finished? Perhaps, perhaps, he's talking about the work that was started all those many days ago on the day of creation of man. It is finished, right? God set forth to create the human being and the human being was created. So when we look back to what St. Irenaeus said in the very beginning, the glory of God is a living human being, the only way you and I will have that uninterrupted communion with God 
we can, we can experience that somewhat to, on this earth, but it's perfected or consummated, as Origen would say, where? At the day of our departure into the next life. And that's when we become fully alive, we become fully in union with God. And I just thought I'd finish with this icon because it's, it's, a beautiful, it's a beautiful icon. It depicts that Christ didn't just resurrect on his own, right? Can you, see what, can you see what Christ is doing? He's holding the hands of who? Do you guys know who they are? Adam and Eve, yeah. Christ ascended and in, descended into Hades, down, descended, and came back up holding the hands of Adam and Eve, in the sense that he made it possible again and united, reunited Adam and Eve with God. And that's, that's the aim and that's the point of our Lord's um, coming into the earth and, and dying for our sake and so forth. That we'll cover in great detail hopefully next week. But this is, this is what it means for us to be human beings. I hope now, I'm sorry, I'm not the greatest speaker, but I hope it, it made sense how we were created to be and what sort of communion we had with God and what sin did to that communion with God and then um, there's, a, there's a restoration of that glory and that happens through Christ and through the mysteries of the church and so forth. I'm finished. I thought. Glory be to God forever and ever. Amen.